0: Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. I think I've shared with you all before, when I was young, I was going through the cupboards at home. You know, that childhood curiosity gets a hold of you sometimes and just looking. You don't know what for, but you just start looking around and. I had the, uh, the fortune of stumbling upon my parents' uh, extra check stash, and I was young enough that I did not understand how checks worked, but I was just old enough to know that my parents used them to pay for just about everything. I thought I was rich. And so I started writing out all these different checks uh, for who knows what. I don't remember, but I thought I was rich. And it was much to my dismay when my parents informed me that I wasn't rich and that I had just ruined a bunch of their extra checks and was in a lot of trouble. But that's besides the point. Uh, The point is is that I, I want you to imagine with me, pretend if you will, just for a moment that you have this magic checkbook. My parents' magic checkbook. Imagine that I have that this morning and uh, my parents' bank account is a magic bank account. It's not just filled with money, it's filled with needs. Whatever you need, my parents have in their bank account. That's what I thought, you know. So let's let's pretend that for a moment. And let's pretend too that we had the time this morning for me to come around to each one of you and go and ask you, all right, I got my magic checkbook here with my magic bank account. What is it that you need? Cliff, what do you need? You know, Bart, what do you need? You just tell me whatever you need, and I've got this magic checkbook, and I'm just going to write out a check for whatever you need. What do you need? Ron, what do you need today? Y'all don't actually have to tell me unless you really want to. Anyone? No, I didn't think so. All right, so just in your heads, imagine that we took the time, went around to every one of you, and asked for you, what is your greatest need? that you have in your life, and, and I'm going to just write you out a check for that. Now, before we read our passage today, I want to tell you about one of the big needs that I had just a few years ago. When uh, Eunice and I came to Michigan, uh, almost coming up on 11 years ago, we came with uh, driving a minivan, Honda, Honda Odyssey minivan, 2003, I think, and then I also had a, a pickup truck A a 2000 Ford F-150 red stick shift uh, pickup truck. I love that thing. It was like my first manly vehicle. I owned a Plymouth Horizon, if you know what that is for a while. That is not a manly vehicle. And so this was like my first manly, uh, you know, vehicle that had ever driven. I loved it. It's red. It's got the shell on the back. And, and it was a stick shift, which was awesome and amazing. You get extra points for that. And uh, and it had uh, Yosemite Sam mud, flips, uh, mud flaps on the back of it. It was just incredible. I loved Loved this truck. And, uh, but the, I have great memories of it. You know, you're able to like go and pick up everything that you want, all the junk that, you know, lumber. I like woodwork. I was able to put lumber in the back. If we wanted to haul firewood, could do that church work, you know, moving tables and chairs and tents and coolers and all that stuff. Just throw it in the back. It was, a, it was an amazing truck uh, that God had blessed me with. I tried to, I remember uh, teaching uh, Peter Momire and Seth Bolheis how to drive stick shift in the back of the church parking lot here. I tried with Eunice, wasn't quite as successful, I don't think, on that one. Uh, But there was problems with this truck. It was getting old, the emergency brake didn't work very well. And for being my most manly vehicle, you wouldn't know that in wintertime because I had to haul my truck out of my, you know, it's snowing and that sort of thing. I had to use the Honda minivan to pull my Two wheel drive truck out of the snowdrifts when I'd get stuck. That takes the manly points away. That almost offset Yosemite Sam uh, mud flaps. So it was getting old and it was time to, to replace this truck. And so uh, I was praying. I was like, God, I really, really need a new used truck. I need a, I need a new used truck and so i was praying i was praying hard i was i was scouring the internet when i'd see a truck on the side of the road for sale i'd stop and check it out and and years and years went by and i was getting super frustrated and it's like god why can't i find this truck i really really need a truck and it took me a while but i finally realized that what i wanted and what i was what i was what i wanted and what i was looking for and even praying for wasn't necessarily what I really needed. It took me a while, but I finally realized um, that my biggest need wasn't hauling lumber or hauling garbage or firewood or tables. My greatest need was hauling a family of seven. I discovered the beauty of a Ford Expedition. I know some of you aren't Ford fans. That's okay. I discovered the beauty of a Ford Expedition extended length Eddie Bauer edition with electric fold down seats in the back. It's pretty much just like my truck, with the exception that uh, you know it had this really nice air conditioning back compartment that has this like carpeted, and you can actually put kids back there without getting arrested. And I didn't have to strap them in with ratchet straps to keep them secured. You know, this, this was an amazing revelation to me that you can like put the seats down in it and then you can put all the lumber and all the junk that you would normally put in a regular truck, a little more gently perhaps, but you can still fit it in there. I just have to get out a shout out to Randy Carey, wherever you're at today, Randy. Thank you, Randy Carey, for introducing me to Ford Expeditions. Now you're probably wondering why I tell you, you know, some of these stories. It's because we can see this dynamic being played out in the Gospel of Mark. As throngs of people hear about this man who can heal, they are flocking to Jesus, running to him so that the, he can meet what they think is their greatest need. And in some ways, it's really hard to blame them. It would be hard to look at a person with leprosy and not think that they you know, that person's greatest need isn't to be healed. It would be hard to look at a paralyzed man and not think that his greatest need is to walk. It would be hard to look at a demon-possessed man and not think that his greatest need is to be freed. And we cannot in any way minimize these needs that these people had. For Jesus looked on them, on these people, with compassion and pity These were difficult places, difficult circumstances that people were dealing with. And Jesus looked on them with compassion. But these people were coming to Jesus and seeking to find an answer to what they thought was their greatest need. And Jesus showed them that while their needs were indeed great, there was something that they needed even more. I wanna be very clear that we don't need to minimize people's physical needs in order to show the greater need that Jesus is about to convey. It's really in the midst of understanding the depth of human need and depravity that we come to understand the even greater weightiness to what Jesus is saying we need even more, more than health, more than walking, and more than freedom itself. Jesus, in this passage today, is trying to help people see that their greatest need is not physical at all, but is spiritual. They need, and we also need, forgiveness to be restored into a right relationship with God. That's what we need. We talked about it this morning in our resolving everyday conflict, the beauty of forgiveness. That is our greatest need. So as we read this passage today, pray with me. God will reveal to us our greatest need to be forgiven. God, I pray. I pray that all those needs, God, that we come here, we have so many different needs. And we come to you and we say, God, we, we have these needs and we want you to meet them. And Lord, I know you look on us with compassion and pity. And God, you will meet so many of those needs. But God, I pray that you will show us our deepest need, that you will open up our eyes to our need for forgiveness from you. We thank you. Amen. I hope you found your, your way to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We're going to read, read along with me here. And when he, referring to Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, as it was reported that he was at home, Now you might remember last week John Fun did a great job sharing about how as Jesus was going throughout Galilee and preaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God and calling people to repent and believe in the gospel, that was Jesus' primary purpose as he was going around But as Jesus was going around preaching, people would come to him, people with heavy needs, the sick, the demon-possessed, and like John shared last week, the man with leprosy came and asked Jesus to be cleansed. And Jesus would have pity on them and healed many. And at the end of chapter one, Jesus told the man healed of leprosy, uh, he told, uh, I'm sorry, in the end of chapter one, he told the man healed of leprosy not to go and tell anyone else, but instead to go to the temple and make an offering for his cleansing. The man disobeyed and instead went out, and I can kind of understand it was difficult for him not to go and share with everyone. He went and, go, went and told everyone, he's like, I've been healed, I've been clean. He went and told everyone about that. And, uh, and that he, uh, he was healed. And as a result, chapter 1, verse 45 ends, and it says that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. But even there, the throngs of people were coming to him. And that's where we pick up today's message, this today's passage. Jesus can't go into towns because of the crowds of people were just coming and inundating him. But apparently Jesus lived in a town, specifically the city of Capernaum, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it was time for him to return home. That's what verse 1 says right there. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, we don't really hear or talk a lot about Jesus' home. We know he was born in Bethlehem. We know he grew up in Nazareth with his, with his parents. Uh, but here we see that, at least in this part of his ministry, he was living in Capernaum. We don't know exactly what this, this term home is referring to. You know, is, is this, uh, this is tidbit of information is unique in the book of Mark, and we don't see it in the accounts in Matthew and Luke. Uh, but, it's, you know, the question is, is this Jesus' literal house? Did he, Jesus even own a house? There's an account in Matthew 8 where Jesus said uh, disciples were trying to follow him, and, and Jesus was saying the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head, essentially saying that he is homeless. You know, but that might have just been referring to him traveling around so much, ministering to people, he didn't really have a home. You know, it's, it's hard to say what this is referring to, in, in Jesus' life as in this part of his ministry. You know, so uh, we're kind of left to guess a little bit. You know, maybe this was something less personal than a home. Maybe it was a rental unit. Who knows? But the interesting thing is that, you know, Jesus is a carpenter's son, so he certainly could have built his own home. But what I'm more curious about personally is he's also the son of God, and uh, was part of the creation of the world. So how, what technique did Jesus use in creating possibly his own home? I don't know. We're left to speculate. Um, but at any rate, uh, this house, you know, whether it was a, his house, a shared family home, or something different, we don't know. But at least it seems like this house was a home base of sorts where he and his disciples could return to and perhaps rest and regroup and then go out again and continue ministry. And I think this bit of information will kind of help personalize the scenario as it unfolds a little bit later. And so going on to verse 2, it says, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Just as expected, the word spread. Everyone heard about this Jesus who was healing people and casting out demons, and they, they apparently knew where he lived, and they converged on his house. They converged on his home. And I know I don't always think the way that Jesus does, but generally when I go home, it's because I'm ready to get away from people. You know, no offense to all of you guys, I love y'all, but you know, we all have like that place where we just want to get away. And uh, you know, we're ready to decompress and rest, and when I'm ready to meet the world again, I'll go outside. But just, you know, let me have some time alone at home. But this is one of the aspects of Jesus' life that I think has always amazed me, that people people never seemed like inconveniences to him. If there's a time you think that it would be uh, fitting for Jesus to maybe go outside with a broom and shoo people away, this might indeed be it. But instead, he was always stopping and allowing himself, the Son of God, mind you, to be interrupted by people, the audacity. But Jesus had time for them. You know, modern counselors would probably tell Jesus that he needs to create better boundaries and, uh, you know, maybe have this safe place where people can't come. And I don't want to diminish that. Jesus did need that time away. You know, there was those times, like we heard last week, where Jesus needed to go alone out in a deserted place early in the morning and pray. There was times when Jesus, you know, he, he got into a boat and went across uh, the, the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, I think in part so he could get some time away. And I think that's why he was sleeping during the storm, is because he needed it so desperately then. But you get this picture of Jesus that he was always stopping, listening, and showing compassion. And Jesus understood that ministry is not a nine to five job, ministry was life, and life was ministry. They were inseparable. I think this lesson for me was the first time I really started to wrap my mind around that. I was out of college, graduated from Moody. I went to uh, Camp Barrackell uh, to go serve for a s- summer, and I was watching their missionary staff. And it, was, it just blew my mind that I couldn't tell when they were on and off the clock. Ministry was life and life was ministry, not just for the person who was officially, you know, on staff and being paid, not just that man, but the, the husband and the wife, and not just them, but also their kids. Ministry, life, and life was ministry, and you couldn't unravel the two. And it was a beautiful thing to be able to see, and that Jesus modeled, I think, that for us very well. And I'm thankful for the many people here at Calvary that have that same perspective on life. Life is ministry. Ministry is life. So moving on in verses 3 through 4, says, And they came, bringing to him, brings to Jesus, a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, Jesus, because of the crowd, Uh, when they couldn't get near to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. For all of you kids with your little kid filling the blanks, blanks there on your sheets, first thing you need to fill in there is good friends lead their friends to Jesus. So you have this group of people at least four, and I say at least four because we just know that four are carrying them. We don't know if there's more that are coming alongside or if they're taking turns carrying them. We just, we just don't know. But at least four people are carrying this paralyzed man. And we're not told precisely why they are carrying uh, this paralyzed man to Jesus, but we, are, we presume that they too had heard about Jesus, perhaps even about the uh, man with leprosy who was healed And they looked at their friend and they saw a possible solution to what they thought was his greatest need. But I'm sure it was discouraging for them. Now, I'm not sure how far they walked to be able to get their friend, the paralytic, to Jesus, but even a short distance of carrying someone can be very daunting. And so they finally arrive, only to discover that there is not a path at the home for them to get to Jesus. It's full of the crowd of people and they cannot get through. And it makes you kind of wonder why is it that this these people carrying a handicapped person can't make their way through this crowd? You know, it seems like people would have you know the, the decency to be like, oh, you you know, you go ahead, you go ahead. But no. When you consider that many of the crowd have come probably for similar reasons as this paralytic, you understand they all have their needs, that they're coming to Jesus to be, be filled or to be met. And so they're like, hey, get in line. You know, don't butt in line. But there are also other people who I think may have been a bigger obstacle. The people who are likely sitting in the front row, people perhaps even unwilling to move. They were men called scribes. Scribes were like the religious lawyers of the day. They were experts on the law of Moses. They would literally spend hours and hours and days and days scribing and writing the law of Moses, the Bible, and writing it out. And they became experts, and people would go to them, and they're they the ones writing commentaries you know, and telling everyone what this all meant. They were the experts. But Jesus had this to say about the scribes and the Pharisees as well. He said, "The scribes and the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses. They were the leaders in the community. He says, "So observe whatever they tell you to do, but don't do what they do. don't act like they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens on other people and they lay them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to, to do it themselves. They do all their deeds to be seen by others for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats, get that? They love the best seats in the synagogues. And I'm kind of, I'm, I'm making some assumptions here. I want you to understand. But I can't help but get this picture in my, in my mind of these scribes up in the front closest to Jesus leaving the sincere seekers and you know, the people in need of healing behind them and it's ironic because the scribes were the ones that were probably probably wanted the least to do with Jesus himself and they were the ones that would help eventually condemn Jesus to death the friends though to their credit were not dissuaded by the crowd houses in this period of time were many times one story houses with flat roofs and they would lay beams on top and on top of those beams they would they would construct either you know a solid uh, a solid roof made of branches and other wood and clay, or they would have tiles that they would pile, you know, on top for the roof to make it watertight. And many times there would be stairs or ladders that would go up the side of the building so that the, the family that lived in the home could go up top and actually hang out up there like it was a patio, like we would use a patio. And so that's how the homes were, were, um, were built. And someone came up with this crazy idea. I respect this guy, whoever thought of it. And I don't think this was a normal manner or custom in Bible times. You know, like when uh, Joseph and Mary and, you know, Mary was pregnant and they were going to Bethlehem. You know, when the, the innkeeper was like, sorry, there's no room. I don't think they were like, hey, let's go to the roof and open it up and make our way inside. This was not a normal manner and custom in Bible times. I think this is an exceptional sort of thing. And so someone came up with this crazy idea to make a hole in the roof. How they did that exactly, obviously, we don't know. But they made a hole in the roof so that they could lower the paralyzed man down. And I think this person, whoever came up with the idea, might have been like a a distant ancestor of Tom Cruise, you know, in the Mission Impossible movies, who thought that they might have a chance of making a hole above a crowd of people who had come to listen to Jesus. They could lower a man before anyone would be able to realize and say, hey, stop, you know. It's like the audacity this, these guys must have had. I'm not sure if it, you know, was maybe that covert. Maybe there was really loud noises. Maybe there's distraction. Maybe, you know, there was clay and sticks and other things falling down. You know, at least dust forming. I know how it is when I get in my ceiling. There's always insulation falling everywhere. You know, so I don't imagine this was like a super sanitary, clean kind of thing. But we just, we're kind of left to assume. But it makes you wonder as as these men are up on the roof lowering you know, trying to start lowering a paralyzed man down. It's like, why didn't somebody just be like, oh, you know, you're going through a lot of effort. That's probably not safe. You know, maybe, maybe y'all should stop and bring, you bring them in the, the normal way. You think, you know, people would have that, um, that response to seeing the situation. But maybe they were more like, some, someone like me would be like, wow, I'm really curious if they can get this guy down without dropping him. Let's watch the show. We don't know what's going through their mind, but this is an intriguing scenario that everyone's finding themselves in. But then, after what must have been quite the commotion, Jesus finally says something. He drops a bomb that that makes a bigger hole than is in the roof. He drops a bomb that just totally, I think, shatters their thinking. Jesus says in verse 5, And when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Again, we are left to guess what the paralytic and his friends were thinking at this time. I can't help but wonder if Jesus said, you know, I can't help but wonder when Jesus said, uh, said this, that your, your son, your sins are forgiven, if the paralytic and friends were somewhat disappointed You know, like Christmas time when you go to your rich parents' or grandparents' house, you know, and you're expecting one thing, a nice tablet or phone, and instead you get the old turtleneck sweater sort of thing. They had gone through this great effort to get the man to Jesus, again, presumably to be healed of his infirmity and be able to walk again. And all Jesus said in response to that was, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's all he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Do you think they might have been tempted to be disappointed? Maybe. <laughs> Considering that this man and his friends had just done some serious damage to Jesus' house. There's that little tidbit of information. Have you ever thought about this? This wasn't just some random home. This was Jesus' house, at least a place that he hung out a lot. That was kind of his, his pad, you know. They'd done some serious damage. So I can see why it would be meaningful you know, for Jesus to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Just put a hole in his roof of his house. You know. That's gonna make his insurance premiums go up this next year through the roof. But I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to. And I don't think they understood it that way either. I think they all knew that something much deeper and profound was going on here. And though they were probably struggling to understand exactly what Jesus was telling them, what they struggled with, we, in hindsight, can see so clearly. What they thought they needed and came for is not what the paralyzed man really needed the most. Son, your sins are forgiven. How do you tell a paralytic that his greatest need is not to walk again? How do you tell someone that? How do you tell anyone who's struggling through life and circumstances, things that are worthy of showing compassion and pity on that? Their greatest need is not the fulfillment of those things. How do you tell people? It's hard. While the paralytic and friends may have thought they were, you know, shorted in some way, you know, thanks for the forgiveness, but, you know, really I was hoping for healing, but, you know, thanks for the forgiveness. They might have thought they were short a little bit. In reality, the paralytic just received the greatest gift known to man. And he may not have even realized it right away. God's forgiveness is what we need most. Kids, your next fill in the blank there. God's forgiveness is the best gift now, to, imagine, to help us understand this situation a little bit more, imagine going down to the courthouse here in Battle Creek. You're in the, in the gallery, you know, you're watching and you're witnessing. There's a guilty criminal standing before the judge for sentencing, and someone comes into the courtroom and makes a proclamation that the crime has been forgiven. The record has been expunged. The price of the crime has been paid for. They are free to go some random person comes into the courthouse and starts saying all these things, what would go through your head? What would go through your mind? You're like, first off, who is this person? Great question. Second question, why does he think he has the authority to forgive someone of their sins and of their crime? Great question. What proof and authority does this man have that he can back it up? Why should we listen to you? Another great question. That's exactly what the scribes, and I think other people are probably doing here, You know, all these questions come flooding into their mind, and we see that in verse 6. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. They made a judgment call there really quick. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? These are the religious experts and attorneys and lawyers all sitting in that courthouse saying, hold on, you can't just walk in here and say, what who, who made you God that you can say this? The scribes were correct, but only partly so. They were right in that it is true that only God can forgive our sins. Now imagine, imagine someone breaks into your home all right, somebody comes in, breaks into your home, they steal all of your stuff. You're really mad and upset about it because your favorite heirlooms, you know, from your grandparents have been stolen and plundered, and and the police comes, you know, to your house, responds to your house, and they're taking the report, and for whatever reason, I'm there with you because I'm pastor, so that's what, I don't know what pastors do, right, but, I'm a pastor, I'm there with you hanging out and they're taking the police report and you're telling them all about it. And I look over at the police officer and I was like, don't worry about it, sir. The criminal has been forgiven. You and the police officer would look at me and be like, you don't have the right to be able to say that. You would be correct in, in calling me out because why? Why? the crime had not the offense had not be, been directed and committed towards me and consequently i do not have the right to be able to forgive that offense you got it the one who suffered the offense is the only one who can truly forgive now consider this scenario also now imagine there's there's two people and go into a business dealing with each other This is a a situation in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, it talks about this. Two people go into this business dealing, one takes advantage of the other and ends up breaking faith and stealing money, taking money that is not his rightfully from the other person. Who has been offended in that? I think there's one layer that we would answer that, but I want you to hear what Scripture says. In Leviticus 6, 2 through 5, it says, if anyone sins in this way, deceiving his neighbor in a matter of depositor security, and commits a breach of faith against God. We would look at that and be like, no, that this guy over here who lost his money, is this other person, that's the guy who's like, no, it's like, it skipped all that and said, no, the person who has been offended, I shouldn't say person, the one who has been offended the most. In that scenario, it's not either one of those people, it is God. The same idea is carried throughout the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 12, 13. David, King David, looked at this woman Bathsheba, Bathsheba and lusted for her. She was married. He went and sent he was sent her husband, to the front line of the war so that he would be killed, essentially murdering this woman's husband so that he could marry her. The prophet Nathan came and confronted David. And David said, I mean, out of all the people we appoint to, who did David sin against? But who did David say? He said, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51, David writes a psalm, and he says, against you and you only have I sinned because the greatest offense of our sin has been committed against a righteous and holy God only the righteous and holy God can forgive us of committing our sins no one else can god alone can forgive Ultimately, all sin is against God. Like Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is what sin means. It's that we have fallen short of what God has created us for and expects of us as his image bearers. We are called to reflect his glory, to show his goodness, to show his love, his mercy and grace and his forgiveness. But instead, we have reflected murder, envy, strife, selfishness, lies, and hatred. God's glory has been trespassed against, so only God can forgive us of our sins. And so the scribes were correct in saying that only God can forgive, but they were wrong when they said that Jesus was blaspheming by claiming to be God. Now I want to make a theological point here. There are some people that will argue that the New Testament, and more specifically the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not teach the divinity of Jesus Christ. They, do not, they will say that, that they do not teach. We don't see anywhere that would lead us to believe that Jesus is God. Not just a man, but is God as well. And this passage right here, I think, would really call that into question. Specifically, Jehovah's Witnesses will say that Jesus was not God. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh day Adventists will also say that Jesus was not God. He was just a man. But that is difficult, very difficult to reconcile, particularly with this passage when even the Jewish experts in the law knew exactly what Jesus was claiming and told him that he was blaspheming because it was so clear to them. Jesus is making a claim of who he is and that he is God. And I also want to point out that there are only two times in the gospels where Jesus specifically told individuals that their sins were forgiven. Here in Luke 7:48, at least just two that I could find right away. When a sinful woman came and anointed Jesus' feet with expensive oil, cried tears on his feet and wiped them with her hair. In both cases, Jesus made the statement, your sins are forgiven. And I think he stated that not just for the benefit of the one being forgiven, but just as much for the benefit of the people listening. And it shouldn't be lost that in our passage day there are scribes present. And in the passage in Luke, there were the main audience was a Pharisee. God is teaching. Jesus is intentionally teaching the teachers and all of us about who He is and what He can do. Jesus is saying, I am God and I can forgive. Now, if you're still looking at your scripture, your passage there in verse 8, it says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in His spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? He asked this question. Listen to this question. What is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? How would you answer that question? Which one of those is easier? It's hard for us to say because we can't really do either one. Now, I think first off in this passage, it's, it's almost as if to emphasize the point of Jesus' divinity that he addressed an unspoken question that was on their hearts. But how would you answer that question? What's easier? To say to the paralytic get up and walk, or that your sins are forgiven. For me, knowing the price that it costs for sins to be forgiven, that God was incarnate, became man, the man Jesus, and dwelt among us, that he humbly served, died on the cross, descended for three days, rose victorious from the grave, I'd say forgiveness sounds like a pretty hard thing to do. But they weren't aware of all that. From the perspective of the crowd, and the paralytic, and his friends, and the scribes, it's important to note that it would be easy to claim that someone was truly forgiven by God. How do you even verify that? If I come to you and say, God forgives you, how can you truly know that God has forgiven you? You wouldn't know until you died. And it's a little late by then to know whether I was telling you the truth or not. How can you know for sure that you have been forgiven? It's a great question. And I think for all intents and purposes, it was easier for, you know, for in their view, it was easier for them for, to, to see that Jesus could say that this man was forgiven and harder to heal a paralytic in their perspective. And that is why Jesus did what he did in verse 10. But that you may know. I'm gonna take what you think is harder so that you can know that this man's sins are truly forgiven. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Why did Jesus heal the paralytic? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's why Jesus physically healed him. Not so that his greatest need could finally be met, but so that the paralytic and friends and the scribes and everyone else there, the whole crowd would finally know that his greatest need had already been met. The healing of the paralytic wasn't the miracle. The forgiveness of the paralytic was the miracle. You might look in your Bibles there for a minute and just look. What's the title over this portion of your scripture? Mine says, The Healing of the Paralytic. I understand it. It's a passage about the paralytic being healed. But the miracle, I think it should read, this is a passage about the forgiveness of a paralytic. The forgiveness of a paralytic. So that's why Jesus physically healed him, not so that his greatest need could finally be met, but so that everyone would know that his greatest need had already been met. God restored him in relationship to himself. And I think that's what all of Jesus' miracles ultimately are meant to point towards, that the truth is is in Jesus there is forgiveness. Mark 8.36 says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world And loses his soul. Did you hear all the list of needs that just turn to nothing? All of our perceived needs that we think are our greatest needs. What does it profit us if we have even seized hold of all of those things? Everything that the world has. And yet lose our soul. What does it profit us? The person who dies with the most toys, the most health, the most popularity, the most money still dies. And we all will stand before God and give an account for our lives that honestly don't reflect his glory. And our answer to this question determines our eternal destiny. And there's only one acceptable answer. I'm sorry, God. I'm a sinner. I'm prideful. I'm arrogant. I'm selfish. I want my own way. But Jesus offered forgiveness and I need to be forgiven. Please forgive me, Lord. I need your help to reflect your glory. I can't do this on my own. God offers us forgiveness. He paid the price so that we can be forgiven. That is the greatest miracle and that is our greatest need. Now one thing real quick before we close is Jesus refers in this passage to their faith, saying their faith has made, you know, essentially has made you well, has has you know, led to your forgiveness to the par- paralytic being healed there. And I want to point this out real quick just so there's no misunderstandings is that other's people, other people's faith do not save us, does not save us. Other people's faith does not save us. That doesn't happen that way. Scripture is very clear with that. Um, but their faith, when it says their faith has, has uh, healed you, uh, that very well could have included the paralytic's faith as part of that equation. It's not necessarily saying just the friends or just the people that accompany him. The paralytic's faith could certainly be part of that equation. But I also want to make a quick point and say that our faith is instrumental in bringing others to Jesus. Our faith is. But uh, we have to understand it in the proper way. Like James 5, 19 through 20, it talks about if anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, it says, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and recover a multitude of sins. Does that mean that when I go after someone who is walking away from God and is sinning, when I go and get them that I personally save them? No, that's not what it is saying. My faith hasn't saved them. What it is, I mean, imagine someone being in a car accident. You go and you're like, Whoa, you're in trouble. I'm gonna get you and I'm gonna go put you in my car and I'm gonna drive you to the hospital because I know I can't save you but I know where there's someone that can. That's the role our faith has, is meant to play in other people's lives like these friends towards, uh, towards the paralytic. Our faith matters to those around us and we have that great responsibility uh, to all those that God puts in our, in our sphere of influence to help bring them to Jesus because they have a need that is greater than all the needs that they could ever imagine. And God has called us to help bring them to Jesus, to help save them, not because we save them. We're just bringing them to the one that can. So in closing, forgiveness is the mark of the divine. Forgiveness is the mark of deity. Forgiveness is the mark of God. Forgiveness is also the mark of those who are God's. Mark 11:25, 25, a little further down the road in the book of Mark, it says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. How many times do you include that as part of your, your pray? Forgive. Pray. Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Matthew 18, Peter came up and said to Jesus, How often will, uh, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Jesus says, As many as seven times seven. I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven you must forgive. And then Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive as you have been forgiving. Jesus doesn't just heal the paralytic. He forgives the paralytic. Our greatest need is to be forgiven. Amen.